I invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one underneath a chair somewhere nearby, and you can find Philippians 4 on page 982 of those pew Bibles. You know, each and every Sunday before the call to worship and after the announcements, one of us pastors will stand up here and issue a welcome on behalf of the church. And it begins with a welcome to those who are weary and need rest. I think if we're honest with ourselves, that that's been all of us from time to time. I'm sure that all of us have had a Sunday morning where we walk into church feeling worn out and weary from life and just needing rest. When we felt so worried about the week ahead that we can barely focus on the words that we're singing. Or there's some problem that's plaguing us and making us so anxious that we can't even pay attention to the words of the sermon. If that's you now, or if it once was you, or if it will be you in the future, and I think that covers all of us, really, uh, then let me encourage you to listen closely to Paul's words from Philippians chapter 4. I've titled this sermon, Peace for an Anxious Heart. And in our text, that's exactly what Paul tells us about. About true and abiding peace for our anxious hearts. He tells us of what one commentator calls the only true antidote for anxiety. So hear now from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and life-giving word from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. Now we're going to walk through this text looking at it under three headings. Rejoice always, pray always, and peace always. So for you note takers, that's rejoice always, pray always, and finally peace always. So let's begin in verse 4 where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. There's this theme of, of joy and rejoicing that runs throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians. And especially if you were to compare it with some of his other letters, it's just overflowing with joy. If you, if you compare Philippians and Galatians side by side, Paul is just overflowing with joy to be able to write a letter to encourage his friends in Philippi. And so Paul, is in this passage, he's taking this defining characteristic of the letter and saying that it ought to be a defining characteristic in the life of a Christian. That Christians ought to be people who rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul thinks that this command is such a big deal that he tells us to do it twice. Again, I will say, rejoice. So what exactly does it mean to rejoice? Well, as we look at the original Greek, we find a simple definition, that it means to be glad or to be delighted. And the Greek word used for rejoicing comes from the same root as the word joy. And thankfully, that works in English, too, that rejoicing and joy are closely related and I checked with Axel, and the same is actually true in Spanish. Joy and rejoicing are closely related. But perhaps to help us understand what joy is, we need to contrast it with a similar term, happiness. Because they're not the same thing. In fact, they couldn't be more different. 
Rejoicing is supernatural. Happiness is worldly. You know, Charlie Brown from the old Peanuts cartoon is famous for saying that happiness is like a warm puppy. We all know that feeling, right? We hold a warm new, you know, new puppy and it's, it's warm, it makes your heart feel happy, but what happens when the puppy goes away? That happiness fades pretty quickly. That's because happiness is worldly. It's circumstantial, it's subject to change on a whim. True joy, true biblical joy, doesn't depend on our circumstances because it comes from the Lord alone. True joy comes from knowing the nearness of Christ in our hearts. So even when circumstances change, even when the warm puppy you know, runs away, our joy carries on. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the author gives us an amazing picture of true rejoicing. He, he imagines this scenario where everything in his life falls apart. Everything goes wrong, and yet he still has joy. Look at Habakkuk 3. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You know, he, he's naming all these earthly calamities. For an agrarian society, th these calamities would have been just horrendous. From an earthly perspective, we would say that Habakkuk would have every reason to be unhappy, to be even angry. And yet look at what he says immediately after this in verse 18. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So here we see that rejoicing or joy itself is it's not based on our earthly circumstances. It's based on the Lord. It comes from him. Remember what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's not, you know, when life goes bad, we should just try harder to look on the bright side of life, as that old song used to say. That's not what gives the true Christian true joy. What gives us joy is to have joy in the Lord and what he has done for us. Sinclair Ferguson comments that this joy, it's not based on how we feel about our personal circumstances but on the fact of our fellowship with Christ and on the facts about him. Our joy comes from our fellowship with Christ and on the facts about him, as in the fact that he is the creator of the universe and he is sovereign over his creation. Or the fact that he has created us to be in fellowship with him. Or the fact that despite our sin and rebellion against the holy God, that he has sent his one and only son to die on our behalf. Or the fact that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Or the fact that those who have repented from their sins and turned to Christ in faith have been justified in God's eyes. Or the fact that we're adopted into God's family. I could go on and on and on about the facts of God and how they give us so much reason for joy. And this is the key. If our joy is based on our fellowship in Christ and on the facts about him, then our joy can never go away. Our joy can never be taken from us because those facts about God and what he has done can never change. Our forgiveness of sins in Christ can never be taken away. Our standing in adoption as the sons and daughters of God can never be revoked. 
So while our happiness might change based on external circumstances, the reason for our joy can never change because God himself never changes. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And because he never changes, then our reason for joy never changes. It never changes. It never goes away. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You know, rejoicing in the Lord, having joy in the Lord, ought to be the ongoing and permanent disposition of our hearts. We should rejoice in the Lord always. Now you can hopefully guess, in the original Greek, what does the word always mean? Always. Right? In every circumstance, in every situation, the posture of our hearts should be one of rejoicing. Even when you've lost a job, for instance, and you don't know how you'll provide for your family, even then we are to rejoice always. Or when a close friend has abandoned you and you're feeling lonely and vulnerable, we are to rejoice always. Or even when you're battling chronic pain or illness, even then, for the Christian, we can rejoice always. Or even, catch this, in the midst of conflict with other Christians, we can rejoice always. Look with me at verse 4 and then continuing into verse 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, at first glance, verse 5 seems kind of randomly plucked into the middle of Philippians 4. But it makes sense when you look just a little bit earlier than our passage. In verse 2, Paul says this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So he's speaking to these two women in the Philippian church and encouraging them to agree, to come together and agree in the Lord. You know, we can surmise that there was some sort of conflict. We don't know exactly what it was, but there was some conflict between these two women that had grown so large that the entire church was aware of it. And so he tells them first to agree in the Lord, and he says in verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord. So what's the connection? Well, if these two women were both rejoicing in the Lord always, then it would help them to handle their conflict in a way that honors the Lord. People who, who are full of joy from the Lord will naturally become less concerned about themselves and more willing and ready to serve others. People who are full of joy from the Lord will look to the Lord's wisdom to help them solve their conflicts. People who are full of joy will hold less tightly to their own specific opinions or desires. So if Euodia and Syntyche were to be always rejoicing, then their heart's disposition would be focused not on the conflict between them, but on the goodness of the Lord. So here's an application for us. When we're rejoicing in the Lord always and remembering his steadfast love for us, that it should change our hearts and change the way we treat others. Our hearts will become less selfish. We'll become less concerned with our own desires, our own wants in a certain situation. We'll be willing to work through conflict. And when all of us, as the church, when we rejoice in the Lord together, when we're bonded together in that unity, 
It'll help us to work through conflicts. It won't help us to, to prevent every conflict in the church, but it will certainly help us to handle them in a way that honors and blesses the Lord. So the next time you find yourself disagreeing with someone, especially another Christian, stop and ask yourself, am I rejoicing in the Lord always? Is my heart rejoicing in the Lord even as I work through this conflict? So we have this first command to rejoice always. And this is a pretty hard command to obey, isn't it? It's hard to say in the moment of stress and anxiety to say, I'm choosing to rejoice. You know, even though I lost my job and my car just got totaled or my parents are sick and I'm trying to care for them or I'm, I'm choosing still to rejoice. That's a hard thing to do. And Paul adds another hard command, which is our second heading to pray always. Instead of being anxious about anything, we are to pray about everything. He says in verse 5, continuing into verse 6, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So before giving us this command to pray always, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Now scholars actually debate what this phrase, the Lord is at hand, means. And there's two possible options. The first one being that Paul was reminding them that the second coming of Christ was imminent. We know that Christ has come in the first incarnation and that he has promised to come again one day. He could return at any moment. So he's saying the Lord is at hand. He, he could come at any moment and that should give us great hope. When he returns, he will take away every single thing that has made us anxious. When, when Christ returns at the last day, he will defeat sin, he will defeat death, he will defeat Satan, which means he will defeat the root cause of all of the anxieties in our lives. So this reminder that the Lord is at hand is a reminder to, to take heart, to focus our eyes on heaven, and then to realize that all of our earthly problems that are bringing us anxiety are so small when compared with the light of eternity. Okay, so that's option one of what this phrase, the Lord is at hand, means. The second possibility is that Paul was reminding them that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's always close at hand to those who need him. Psalm 34 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, when I happen to have the free time for a woodworking project, I, I find it helpful to always have a tape measure in hand or in my pocket or attached to my belt or somewhere close by on the table. I always want it at hand ready when I need it. And even more so, the Lord is always at hand and near to those who are experiencing anxiety. So which of these two options is it? I would say it's both. That Paul's language is intentionally vague, so there's, he's covering both of these ideas. Yes, the Lord is coming soon. He absolutely is. So we should lift our eyes to heaven and, and put our focus there. And while we're still in this fallen and sinful world, we can take heart that the Lord is near to us. He is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is at hand. And it's with this in mind that Paul then gives us this next command. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. You know, you can think of this anxiety like a tug of war with your heart, where you're being pulled in two different directions. So our, your hopes and your expectations are pulling you in one direction, 
but the trials of life are pulling you in another direction, and there you are in the middle, feeling like you're almost at a breaking point. That's anxiety. And anxiety is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. One study found that more than half of college students who visited a campus health center listed anxiety as a chief concern. And almost a quarter, 25% of college students say that their anxiety is so bad that it negatively affects their grades. I can guarantee that almost every one of us knows this feeling well. In our culture today, there's so much to be anxious about. Because of the internet, because of smartphones in our pockets 24-7, we're simply more aware of more problems in the world than we ever have been before. Add on to that the pressures from social media to, to post more often, to get more likes, to compare our lives with the lives of others. Or the constant pressure at work to produce more, to work more, to outperform your coworkers. It's no wonder that anxiety is a growing battle. And this problem of anxiety is starting younger and younger. You know, as the student ministry's pastor, I can tell you that even our middle schoolers are dealing with intense anxiety. Even our elementary school students have faced this. It's a major problem. And yet Paul says, for the Christian, we have no need to be anxious. Because the Lord is at hand. And because he's at hand, we need not be anxious about anything. Why? Because the Lord is never panicked. God is never caught off guard. Our Lord is never surprised by anything. He's never anxious about anything. Let me remind you of this quote from the Heidelberg Catechism that we confessed earlier in the service. That he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Think about that for a second. That all those things that bring us anxiety, that, that worry us to no end, that bring us to our breaking point, we've got to remember that all of those things fall under the will of our Father in heaven. He's not surprised by them. He's not anxious about them. He preserves and governs all of his creatures so that not even a hair can fall from our head without his will. And we can know this in our heads, right? We, we, we can have knowledge of this. We can know that the Lord is sovereign, that we ought to trust in him, that we ought to have no reason for anxiety. And yet, our hearts are still anxious from time to time, aren't they? Our hearts still grow anxious. We may doubt the truth of God's sovereignty. So what do we do about that? What is the antidote for our anxiety? Look what Paul says in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what should we do about this anxiety? We should pray. This is not just Christian speak. Right? This is not just flippantly casting aside real anxieties that you're facing, like, oh, just go pray about it and you'll be fine. No, no, prayer is the God-ordained means by which we are to deal with our anxieties. When we feel ourselves growing anxious about something, we must, time and time again, go to the Lord in prayer. 
We must offer our desires up to him. Because this is what he has commanded us to do. We are to pray about everything. We are to pray about everything. I bet you can guess the answer. You know, what, what does the original Greek word translated everything mean? It means everything. Everything. Big and small. It's worth reminding us what the Shorter Catechism says about prayer. That prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. In prayer, we are telling God what we desire, and we ought to bring anything and everything to him in prayer. We have the privilege of bringing all our needs, big and small, to the Lord. And we have the privilege to do this regularly. You know, Sunday after Sunday, when we gather together to pray, we, we pray and bring our requests to the Lord, but As believers, we have access to the throne room of God all day, every day. On Wednesday morning when work is hard, on Thursday night when you're so worried about what your children are doing, in every situation we can go to the Lord in prayer. When Paul says that we are to bring everything to the Lord in prayer and make our requests known to him, he's urging us to bring our requests constantly to God. And to do it early, to do it often. David Strain says that some of us pray only at the fringes of our lives. When things are going wrong and we are worried already. And often the Lord is gracious to answer those prayers. But for the most part, if you wait to pray until you are already overtaken by anxiety, you have prayed or you have waited too long. You've waited too long. Don't. Don't wait too long to bring your requests before the Lord. I love the reminder that Paul says to bring your requests with thanksgiving. You know, I think it it can be far too easy to bring something to the Lord in prayer, pray about it, and then forget about it. Never, Never to think about it again. I think we ought to make it the regular practice to thank God for what he has done. We're to teach our hearts to trust even more in him by thanking him for what he's done. You know, my my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Levi, we are teaching him how to pray. And one of his favorite things to do when he's praying is to thank God for every single person that he knows. Now, it's possible this is a a, a delay technique to push back bedtime, but I think most of the time he's sincere, and he'll, he'll thank God for his mom and his dad and his cousins and his grandparents and his friends, and actually many of you, he's prayed for you and thanked God for you by name. You know, when, when Paul tells us to pray with thanksgiving, it's not just thank God for whatever comes to mind in the moment. We ought to be specific to thank him for the prayers that he has already answered. Yeah, I find it helpful before I pray to pause and reflect And think about the prayers I've been praying and wonder, how has God been working through those? How can I thank God for the prayers he's answered? Or the prayers that he clearly said no to, to thank him for that answer as well. Getting into this practice of thankfulness will only help us to trust even more that God is in control. That we can trust him with our prayers and he really does listen to us. So we have these commands in this passage that we are to rejoice always. In every circumstance, we can have joy in the Lord because our joy isn't based on what's happening around us. 
but on the everlasting faithfulness of God. And then Paul tells us to pray always. Instead of being anxious about anything, we are to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. And now attached to these commands is one of the sweetest promises in Scripture. Peace always. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What an incredible promise that is. To know that God will protect our hearts and our minds through our union with Christ. That you and I can have true, lasting, everlasting peace. Paul uses this language to guard your hearts. There's a bit of a double meaning behind that phrase. As he was writing this letter to the Philippians, Paul was under house arrest. There very well could have been a Roman soldier sitting in the corner of the room guarding Paul and keeping him from escaping. So he's got that guard in the corner. But also the Philippians receiving this letter were under Roman control in their city. And there was rising persecution against the Christians there. And so the Christians receiving this letter were probably quite anxious about the Roman guards walking around outside. And yet Paul takes this idea and says that the true guard, the one who guards our hearts and our minds, is Christ Jesus. So he says to the Philippians, you don't need to be anxious about the Roman guards. You don't need to be anxious about anything because the God of peace is actively guarding your heart and your mind. You know, there are a lot of home remedies for anxiety. There are breathing exercises that for a few moments might be helpful. Some people might try meditation or yoga or some other exercise to gain control over their own anxiety. Still others try to find a cure for anxiety in planning just the the perfect vacation. You know, if we can just get away from it all for a week. Now, of course, you come back home from vacation and all your problems are still there, right? Still others will try to find peace from their anxiety in pills, in alcohol, in pornography, in any other number of vices. But the truth is, those things don't work. They don't cure our anxiety. Every single one of them will fail to bring true peace, and actually, most of them will just make matters worse. So Paul here says that the peace is of God. The peace that you and I need is of God. The peace for our anxious hearts has got to come from God himself can't come from earthly means, but only through the supernatural grace of God in Christ Jesus. Not only does this give us peace, but not only does God give us peace, but he himself is peace. God himself is peace. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Or in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace. We see here this idea of what Paul means when he says that God will give us peace and guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. It's that through our union with Christ, we have peace with God. That all of us, because of our sin, without the mercies of Christ, we are enemies with God. In our fallen state, the Bible says that we are enemies with God, and yet, while we were still enemies with God, He reconciled us to himself. Look at Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You know, we were enemies with God because of our sin and our rebellion against him. And yet God, in his abundant mercy, sent his son Jesus to die in our place. To reconcile us back to God. To give us his righteousness. So that anyone who puts their trust and their faith in him shall have the peace of God. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul writes that, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God in his abundant mercy has brought peace where we were once enemies. And it's out of knowledge of this peace in Christ that he brings us peace in this life. to, To know that our relationship with God is held secure by Christ's mighty hand, it gives us true peace. That we will never again be enemies with God. While we might have earthly anxieties and earthly enemies, we will never again be enemies with God. We've been reconciled to him once and for all through Christ. Now, knowing this peace and comfort from Christ, it gives us peace today. It gives us true, lasting peace that surpasses all understanding. And one of the reasons why God's peace is so amazing is that we can have this peace even when it doesn't make any earthly sense. Paul has the peace of Christ even while he's under house arrest and there's a Roman soldier sitting just feet away. The Christians in Philippi can have the peace of Christ even as persecution grows. Friends, you and I can have the peace of God in the face of whatever is bringing anxiety in our lives. Now, I know it's been a while since Richard was preaching through the Gospel of John, but I want to remind you of something from John's Gospel in John 14. This is what Jesus told his disciples in the upper room the night before he was betrayed and ultimately hung on the cross. He gives them this promise. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here Jesus says that he gives us true peace. Not worldly peace. Not worldly peace that fades away after just a few moments. Not a remedy for anxiety that actually just makes matters worse but true, lasting peace. True peace in our relationship with Christ and true peace in our hearts despite the anxieties of our lives. So when our hearts are troubled, we need not be afraid. Instead, we ought to rejoice in the finished work of Christ. And we ought to bring our requests to God in prayer. And we are to take refuge in the peace that God gives us. Are you experiencing this kind of peace? Have you tasted of the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding? Now, this kind of peace is is found exclusively in Christ. It's only available to us by trusting in him. So if you don't know him, if you've not been reconciled to God by faith, then come to him. Cling to him. He will receive you. He will forgive you of your sins and you too can receive this abiding peace that comes from knowing Christ. 
But remember, Paul says that this peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Which means it's not possible to have this peace outside of Christ. We can't gain this peace by other means. It's only through him. Come to him. Trust in him. And if you're in Christ, then let this be a reminder to you of the sweet grace it is to submit your problems to the Lord in prayer. Bring everything to him. Submit everything to him by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. If there's something that's bringing you anxiety, bring it to the Lord. If there's something that's worrying you, whether big or small, bring it to the Lord. And when we do these things, we can take heart that the promise of Philippians 4 is true. That the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will, dear Christian, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It will. Let's pray and ask him for that peace now. Heavenly Father, all your ways of mercy tend to and end in our delight. You sent your son Jesus who wept and was filled with sorrow and suffered that we might rejoice. For our joy you have sent the comforter. You've multiplied your promises and you've shown us our future happiness. Out of an overflow of the joy that you have given us, please help us to trust that you hear our prayers. Give us hearts that long to be in your presence. And give us minds that recognize with thankfulness the ways in which you've already answered our prayers. We ask you to please give us that peace that surpasses all understanding. Please guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And please let us rest in the thought of your love and your pardon for sin and in our future unspotted state. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.